Hello and welcome to another episode of the Dongfang Hour China Aerospace and Space News Roundup. This for the week of the 23rd to 29th of November 2020. I'm Blaine Curcio, joined as always by my co-host John Deville. This week we will bring you updates on a China Satcom satellite order, the U.S. administration blacklisting a number of Chinese companies with ties to the military, a liquid methylox engine, news of the 5G World Congress in Guangzhou. But first, Jean will give us an update on China's recent Chang'e 5 lunar mission. Ladies and gentlemen, we are honored to welcome you aboard the Dongfang Hour. Please make sure your seatbelt is securely fastened. Thank you. John, take it away with Chang'e Five. Absolutely, Blaine. So, let's start with the big news of the past week, which was、um, which was basically that we witnessed、um, together the launch of the of the Chang'e Five. A lunar sample return mission that took place at Wenchang Launch Center, that's in、uh, the island of Hainan in southern China, and that was on Tuesday, the twenty-fourth of November, early morning Chinese time.、Um, the launch was a success, which makes it、um, a first in the history of China, the first lunar sample return mission, and it is also、um, globally a first since the last lunar sample return mission that goes all the way back to nineteen seventy-six. That was the Luna 24、uh, sample return mission of the、um, of the Soviet Union. So, as as mentioned, the the launch went well,、um, and it, it took place on board a、uh, Long March 5, which is the heavy lift launch vehicle of China, and、uh, the Chang'e 5 spacecraft was put on a trajectory、uh, towards the moon. And so, after a number of maneuvers, it managed to、um, insert itself into lunar orbit、um, just yesterday. It is today in an elliptic or,、um, orbit around the around the moon and. Quick heads up on what's going to happen in the next few days. We will have、um, a few extra maneuvers, so the、uh, the spacecraft basically can enter the ideal uh, lunar um, orbit uh, in order to land in the planned landing site, which is a a, a, a volcanic formation called Mons Rumker, I believe, in in an area of the moon called、um, the Ocean of Storms, which is a very cool name.、Um, and what will happen next is the lander and the ascent module they detach, they land on the moon. And at that point, this is when the drilling and the sample collection takes place. The sample is put onto the ascent module. The ascent module takes off, leaves the lander on the moon, and performs an automatic docking with the orbiter that remained in orbit. Then the sample is put into the、um, return capsule, and the ascent module separates. It is no longer required. The orbiter goes back on an Earth-Moon、um, trajectory, and in the vicinity of the Earth,、um, the return capsule then. Um, separates and re-enters the atmosphere and lands in Inner Mongolia. So, that's a very simplified version of what's going to happen. I hope I didn't make too many viewers cringe out there、um, when I said that. But basically,、um, it's also interesting to know that we went from an 8.2 tons spacecraft at liftoff from Earth, and we will be getting hopefully、um, the samples, which are only. Two kilograms. So it's crazy when you think how much effort is required to just get two kilograms of moon samples、uh, back onto the Earth. And maybe just a, a quick point to, to wrap this up on Chang'e Five. I what I wanted to add also is that、um, it, it's not just a repeat mission of、um, Luna Twenty Four or the other lunar missions.、Um, it is it is a more sophisticated mission with technology that you'd expect in in Twenty Twenty. There was、um, so typically, for example, Chang'e Five is eight point two tons. 
um, at liftoff, and you compare that to Luna 24, which was uh, five to six tons, I believe. Um, so that's a lot of extra propellant, the possibility to do a lot of uh, high precision maneuvers to land anywhere on the moon, whereas the Luna missions were a bit more limited regarding uh, the areas where it could land, I believe. Um, there's also more sophisticated equipment and instruments regarding, um, you know, where to land, being able to analyze and avoid obstacles and just decide which is the best area once the lander has landed, which is the best place to drill and, you know, just collect the samples. So, um, so yeah, fingers crossed that um, this goes well. Um, so, Blaine, do you have any, any thoughts? Did you watch the launch? Um, well, it's probably a bit early in Hong Kong. I did not watch the launch, but a couple of points to add. So I guess your, your 8.2 tons to get two kilograms of lunar samples is, is a good point. But I, I guess maybe an even larger number is uh, the, the sort of like, what, 1.8 million pounds that is the Long March 5 that was also used to get the uh, to get that 8.2 ton spacecraft into orbit just to get the two kilograms of, of lunar samples. So it's pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I, I think was interesting is um, so you know, as, as you mentioned, the launch took place from Hainan, from Wenchang uh, Launch Center on, on this, this tropical island in the southern part of China. And and over the last few years, there have been a few launches from Hainan. It's always the, the Long March 5. Uh, or is there another Long March that launched the Long March 8 also from Hainan? Or no, which only the 5? The 7. 7, that's, yeah. But anyway, you, you know, this is becoming kind of a, a space industry thing in China that you have people making the pilgrimage down to Hainan during launches. and. There was this really epic photo taken during the launch of just uh, like literally hundreds of people on this beach that was quite far. I mean, you could see the launch site way in the distance and everyone had their phones up and, and some people were wearing masks and it looked like some people were not. And and it was literally just hundreds of people out there on the beach. And uh, we, we had shared this uh, this photo on the Dongfang Hour Twitter account. And we had a lot of people in, well, not a lot, but a handful of people in, in Western countries kind of resharing it and saying, yeah, me, you know, over in this part of the world, we're all on lockdown and, and things are just completely, uh, you know, up, upside down. And, and meanwhile, on the other side of the world, they're just launching uh, rockets to the moon and, and having big parties outside with a bunch of other people. So, um, yeah, just a really crazy, interesting contrast, I guess. Um, and, and certainly a pretty and, pretty cool launch. Yeah. And I think on that, I, I, was, I was very impressed also by the coverage that there was of this event. Um, from the Chinese side, there was a live coverage. Mm -hmm. There was a very interesting... Um, live coverage and interviews on the CGTN, which is the English speaking Chinese media. Um, and there was also impressively some, some good coverage from other space YouTubers, um, such as Everyday Astronaut, which is a YouTuber I quite like. There's also um, on the French side, there's uh, Rêve d'Espace, Space Kiwi. They also did a, mm. a, a you know, a, a live coverage. So, so that was, that was really great. And um, hopefully they will continue to continue to do that because sometimes it's, you know, it's, quite irregular in terms of if, you know, if there is live coverage or not of a, of such an important launch. So that's, yeah, it's good job on, on China for that. It's a pretty epic, like 4k, 120 frames per second, Billy Billy videos that were posted of just like, you know, really close up of the, uh, the engines as the, as the rocket is taking on and just really, uh, yeah, pretty cool. Pretty, I guess they're, they're getting better at, uh, you know, marketing and kind of branding and producing good content. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's been cool to watch. Maybe maybe you should do a live coverage someday for the next big event like that. Well, yeah, I mean, we got idea. the invite from Landspace to go to the DQ2 launch, so we got to do yep. that. Yeah, we'll have to do a, a live episode from there. So, um, anything else on Chang'e Five, or are we we good to go on to, on to the next uh, story of the week? All good. Yep. So, uh, next story of the week, we have China Satcom, uh, which, uh, according to an article from Satellite World Wasting, yeah, which is a, a quite um, well-known kind of uh, non-state affiliated media source in the space industry in China, 
Um, China.SATCOM has ordered five satellites that will be launched between 2021 and 2023 into geostationary orbit. These are all communication satellites. And a couple of things about the article that were interesting. So um, I guess initially the, the headline mentions that they're kind of broad, like television broadcast satellites, several of them. So this would be Chinasat 6D and 6E, which respectively are going to be replacements for 6A and 6B that are sort of C and KU band standard wide beam satellites. And these are, are basically just going to be continuing to do linear TV broadcast, it sounds like, from their launch in say 2022 until 2037 when they would be coming out of orbit, which is really, um, I don't know how much linear TV there's going to be in 2037, but I suppose ChinaSat 6D and 6E will be there. And according to the headline of this article, that is their purpose is, you know, broadcast satellites. The other satellites that were ordered were ChinaSat 9B, which is a replacement for 9A, and then a couple of high throughput satellites, ChinaSat 26 and ChinaSat 19. Um, so, these five satellites, the total cost is 3.9 billion RMB. It's, it's about 600 million US dollars. This is all effectively a transfer pricing exercise insofar as China Satcom is a subsidiary of Cask, and then the satellites are being purchased from Cast, which is another subsidiary of Cask. And so th there's really, it's always fun to you know, watch the money go from one pocket into the other pocket. But, but um, I, I guess the, the interesting uh, points that I would highlight about these satellites would be None of them appear to be the, uh, the DFH-5 satellite bus. So CAST, their, their largest uh, geostationary communication satellite bus at the moment that they produce regularly is the DFH-4. And there's a newer version, the DFH-4E. So the four uh, enhanced, I think, would be, yeah. Um, and so the DFH-4 has been a quite like solid workhorse satellite bus over a rather long period of time. I don't know the could be high single digit number of years that they've been using the four as their workhorse. Um, the five, they had attempted to launch the Shirtian 18 satellite in 2017. That was the first DFH-5 bus, and that launch failed. So it seems that um, that CAST is, is pushing the DFH-5 project a little bit to the right, as it were. Um, and I, it's, it's always hard to speculate as to why that is, but my personal feeling is that right now we're seeing a lot of innovation and a lot of uncertainty in this, in this sort of SATCOM part of the market on the manufacturing side. So you're seeing companies like Viasat that are developing like these very, very big one terabit per second geostationary satellites, which is literally like 30 or 40 times larger than what, what CAST is probably capable of producing now, or maybe 20 times larger. Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum, you have these companies like Astranis or Saturn Satellite Networks that are building what are called small geos. So this would be like a three or five or 700 kilogram geostationary satellite as compared to say a 5,000 kilogram one, which is sort of the standard. And these small geos would be like 10 or 20 or 30 gigabits per second. So you would have a satellite that is uh, comparable in throughput to say a ChinaSat 26 or like a ChinaSat 16 for sure. Um, but that is maybe one tenth or one twentieth of the mass. So you have this a lot of innovation going on, primarily from Western, like American, like Viasat and, and Saturn and Astranis, and then you have, you know, of course, Starlink and Leo that are all doing a lot of things uh, in terms of developing sort of better communication satellites. So it could be that um, that CAST has kind of seen that the DFH five is is not in its current iteration such a, a huge step up. It's sort of an iteration of the DFH four, and so I, I would imagine it's possible that they are putting more resources into making kind of a, a more revolutionary move forward in terms of their geostationary communication satellite capabilities. Um, but again, that's speculation. So yeah, uh, I guess just to summarize, we have five satellites ordered by China Satcom. Three of them are replacement satellites for existing ones. Two of them are new HTS satellites that are going to be probably, it looks like covering like uh, 
quite wide area from a little bit of the Western US all the way across the Pacific, across China, and then over towards the Middle East. Um, that based on a coverage map that was published in the China SATCOM presentation earlier this week that we can probably post on the, the episode as well. Um, but John, anything, anything from you on the, the five China SATCOM satellites that were ordered for, uh, for 3.9 billion RMB? Yeah, and uh, so specifically on the 26 and 19, um, if they are um, DFH-4 e-satellites, uh, satellite buses, and this is something that you mentioned when we discussed this point earlier, uh, the DFH-5 is a very large satellite bus. And the fact that these two satellites very likely will be DFH-4 e-satellite buses uh, probably means that perhaps there isn't that much uh, demand currently for a K and KU band capacity um to justify, you know, launching such large satellites over over China and the you know the the the, the Asia Pacific region, and um, just reminds me that last week there was um, there's an airline Chengdu Airlines that um, a Chinese airline that equipped itself with wireless IFE, and uh, once again it was wireless IFE without the connectivity component. So we definitely see that a lot of the downstream users of this broadband connectivity are quite slow to equip their fleet with, um, you know, the the, the hardware that would be enable the use of um, you know satellite connectivity. So uh, that could be another mm. reason, as well as Long March 5 as well, because DFH5 launches on a Long March 5. It's too big to launch on the, um, you know, the current geostation- geostationary launch vehicle workhorse, which is the 3B. Um, so Long March 5 now has proven to be a reliable um, rocket. It has launched successfully at the end of last year and this year. Um, but it's probably not as straightforward as launching a, a 3B, which has really a, you know, 20 years of successful history. And they have other things for which they need the Long March 5, such as the, the Chang'e 5 mission and other, well, not anymore, I guess, but, but yeah, they, there's a lot of, a lot of big things going on. Chinese large modular space station, I guess is next. That'll be fun to watch. So onto the, uh, administration of the U.S. blacklisting some companies. Would you like to take us there, Sean? Give us, uh, our, our your yeah, perspective given your third party absolutely <laughs> it's, and it's also um it's also a way to put a little aviation in the weekly news update so um Always according good. to a piece by Reuters last um last week um the US administration the Trump administration plans to so it's it's not done yet but apparently the rumors are that it plans to blacklist 89 companies Chinese companies that are quote unquote have military ties and out of these 89 companies, we have a, a significant number of them that have that are strongly involved in the commercial aviation industry. And we have um, companies such as Comac, which is commercial aviation of China, um, and which is uh, based in Shanghai, and that manufactures the single aisle C919 commercial airliner. And we also have companies like Avic, which are a huge um, aviation manufacturing conglomerate with institutes all around the country. And so the question really is, what does this mean if this blacklist actually um, you know, becomes effective? And it would probably mean that the a lot of the U.S., I mean, all U.S. aviation manufacturers and parts manufacturers would have to request specific authorizations from the Department of State to, you know, to, to get the authorization to export um, components to Chinese, uh, the blacklisted Chinese companies. And um, another question is what would be the consequence? And um, my opinion on that one is that it would be devastating and on both sides. Um, so if we first take um, a, a U.S. point of view, um, the, I mean, on the U.S. side, definitely the blow would be devastating because um, the Chinese commercial um, aviation market is is no small market today. It represents 
about 20% of the global commercial aviation industry. And that is bound to grow in the coming years. It will probably overtake the US somewhere in the 2030s. Um, and Boeing is doing very well in China, just sell, selling a lot of um, a lot of um, aircraft and a lot of U.S. Um, parts manufacturers also doing quite well in, in China. And now if we take the Chinese, um, see things on the Chinese side now, it would also be devastating for the manufacturing industry there and probably even more so uh, than for the U.S. because, you know, and, and this is an article that I, I wrote in China Aerospace blog about two years ago, um, the, the C919, for example, the Chinese single-aisle um, aircraft relies very much on... Um, foreign technology and on US technology and like on companies like Honeywell, um, General Electric, Collins Aerospace, all these companies would probably have to halt their cooperation with COMAC. And this would undoubtedly uh, put a full stop to the C919, I'd say for five and possibly 10 years. So it's it's honestly, it's a, do a double-edged sword. And um, there's a parallel to be done with the space industry in the late 90s between the US and China. It, it moved suddenly from what was a rather cooperative relationship, although reluctant from the U.S. side, to really a, a, a you know full-fledged decoupling. And the question is, could this happen um, for the aviation market? And there are there are similarities between space and aviation. There are also differences in in aviation. It's it's a much more international market. It's a bit it's more commercial. It's slightly less political, relatively. And there's also the notion of certification in aviation that you don't have um, in space. So. Um, it, yeah, I, I think there could be a lot of damage on both sides and on the Chinese internet, a lot of Chinese netizens were you know, saying, is this really the plan that the US administration has, or is it more of a ploy to, you know, put pressure on the CAAC, the Civil Aviation Authorities of China, which is the, the Chinese version of the FAA, um, to reauthorize the Boeing 737 MAX to, to retake the skies. This is something that the FAA mm -hmm. did already a couple weeks back. So that could also be a political move. Um, so yeah, a lot of um, stuff happening um, in the aviation sector. Um, yeah, on, on that side and, in China. And I think the other interesting, I think the other interesting thing to see about this will be. Um, it, it reminds me of an article written, I think, last month on Bloomberg about uh, Avic and their their footprint in the U.S. Because Avic has a lot of investments in the United States, and they have some like wholly owned subsidiaries, and then some that are that are joint ventures. Um, and I'm just looking at this map here that I, that I sent across to you a moment ago on, on WeChat. And you have like a company like, it's called Cirrus Aircraft in Minnesota that, that seems to do private jets. And I, I don't know what part of private jets, but they have their next tier automotive group that does steering systems in Michigan. And you, you got about eight or 10 companies here that, that are AVIC subsidiaries or JVs in the US. So these are like you know, American jobs that, that may now be in the crosshairs to some extent in the sense that it's going to be more difficult, it seems like, for, for AVIC to be doing things with the US at, at all. I, I, Think so. Um, we can post that article as well. It, it seems like um, I think you're probably right that this is. Although I, it's always hard to know. But but I think um, you know it's a negotiating tactic. Maybe we'll see. But um, I don't know. I, it's, mm. it's, it's certainly a strange time for U.S.-China relations. Yeah. Definitely. Um, mm. So uh, moving on to the the Kasich liquid methane engine. Have you? So this is a. It's kind of a mysterious update. So, so Kasich uh, and, and XBase released a couple of photos of a the the Mingfeng liquid methylox engine uh, from earlier this week. So, this is a an engine being developed by by seemingly by XBase. Um, and this week, they completed a systems level hot test with the test verifying the integrity of the engine system, the thrust chamber, combustor, turbo pump, valve, and, and the final assembly. 
Um, and it's kind of strange because up to this point, um, I had never heard of Kasich developing a liquid methylox engine. I've never heard of this Mingfeng engine. Um, I all of Xspace's current, like the Quadro One A certainly, and the Quadro Eleven certainly, and are, are using solid and uh, propel, uh, propulsion engines. Um, and Quadro Twenty One, as far as I know, is also planning to be a solid uh, solid fuel engine. So. Yeah, this was a little bit of a random update that Kasich is apparently developing a liquid methylox engine, but uh, apparently their Mingfeng engine is has now completed a, a systems level hot test. Um, I suppose probably they would expect to be selling this engine to other companies. There was no information available on, um, as far as I know, there was no information available on like any of the specifics of, of like what was the thrust or what was the diameter, or what was you know, any of the dimensions or anything. Um, Jean, anything, uh, anything from your side on this kind of mysterious engine update from, uh, from mm. Kasich, from X-Base? I think that, yeah, either they would be selling it to a, one of the other companies that are not making their own liquid, you know, liquid propulsion engines, or if they're using it for themselves, that would definitely be a major shift in their strategy. I mean, even just a month or two um, ago they, at CCAF, they were, they were justifying, you know, the business case for solid rockets and how there was really a market mm. for for solid propulsion, and and so yeah, that would just yeah be a big change um, compared compared to yeah what they said just one or two months ago. Yeah, and and I mean just just one one last point to kind of close the loop here. I mean I, I had I did a search around Baidu in Chinese for Mingfeng engine or Mingfeng liquid methylox engine or you know Mingfeng Kasich, you know, some various kind of combinations of these phrases. And like literally nothing, nothing, <laughs> except, except for this article from a couple of days ago that was, you know, saying, "Oh yeah, we've done the, the, the systems level test." So, so yeah, it's um, I don't know. You never know. It's uh, just just as we're talking about a new solid uh, rocket company every every week or so, we have Kasich now bucking the trend, coming at us with the liquid methylox. That's nice. Mm-hmm. Um, so the last point of news on the week. So we have the the World Five G convention opening in Guangzhou, and. Um, I came across this news because there was an article written about a speech given by the chief designer of the Beidou third generation constellation, Yang Changfeng. And uh, Mr. Yang was noting that basically he was talking about how all of the core components for the Beidou third generation constellation are domestically manufactured. So it's 100% Chinese manufactured. And then the relationship to 5G, he was saying that because this 5G world is going to be relying on highly precise and current location data, there's going to need to be, you know, the Beidou third generation, more precise uh, satellite navigation system. And, um, you know, he, there was some sort of discussion on some of the standard talking points about trying to have Beidou compatible chipsets at all smartphones in China. He mentioned that at the moment, 80% of phones in China are, are equipped with um, with Beidou 3 chipsets. And uh, yeah, an interesting, um, seems like an interesting conference. I mean, I've, I've seen... There's a really, really good blog I, I came across recently called Analysis Branch. It's, it's run by this guy called uh, Dave Bernstein. He talks about 5G in, in very much detail. And he's written for quite some time about the fact that China is not only the leader in 5G in terms of like network rollout, but also the leader in 5G in terms of um, smartphone sales because it's just become really, really cheap. You have like eight or 10 smartphone companies that are all competing for this market. And they've now gotten to the point where for like 200 or 250 US dollars, you can get like a reasonably fine 5G compatible phone. That being said, he also points out correctly that um, there is still no real sort of killer app for 5G. Like everyone has these 5G phones, but um, what can what are they doing with them that they could not be doing on like an LTE connection? You know, it's, so so it's an interesting 
Yeah, the 5G buzz phrase continues to live on, and I don't think we're nearly, you know, at the end of that. I think this is going to be probably the, the word of 2021. Um, but yeah, Jean, anything from your side on the, the 5G conference, uh, the World 5G convention in, uh, in Guangzhou this week? Um, not really. You covered it pretty well. I just, um, when you, when you, when you went through that, it reminds me of an article I read last week. I think it was in, in Genesis Today or, or another, um, you know, um, SatNav focused a magazine um, discussing how Beidou outside of China was gaining market share. So I, I'll probably link that somewhere um, in the show notes. Um, yeah, I don't remember the figures, but yeah, it's worth mentioning that Beidou is also growing not just in China, but also outside of China. Makes sense. They have a lot of... Uh... Well, not a lot. They have a handful of like Beidou overseas research and development type centers in places like Thailand and I think also Tunisia, perhaps. So it's it's going to be a, there's going to be a lot more Beidou where that came from, I suppose. Uh, OK, so anything else, John, from your side for this week? Or I'm we... all good. OK, then. Good to go. Well, thank you very much for listening. This has been another episode of the Dongfang Hour China Aerospace and Space News Roundup. I'm Blaine Curcio, joined as always by Jean Deville. And thank you for listening. We will see you next week. Thanks for watching. Bye-bye.